Hello and welcome to the Recreation to Recreation podcast, the show where we explore the stories of people who have turned the activity that they love into positive change for our world. My name is Jen, and I'll be your sidekick on this adventure as we treasure hunt for gems of insight and wisdom while exploring the planet with our inspiring guests. For today's adventure, we're heading across Canada with Colin to explore his world of exploration, learning, and the great outdoors. Hey, Colin, how's it going? Good, yourself, Jen? Very well, thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So I was wondering, before we get stuck into our weird and wonderful questions, could you possibly set the scene for us in terms of where you are and what it's like? Get us situated in your world. For sure. I've had the privilege of living in a lot of different places in this country, in Canada. But right now, uh, I'm located on Treaty 7 territory, uh, specifically Canada's first national park in Banff National Park, just an hour west of Calgary, situated in the heart of the Rocky Mountains. Beautiful. And what's the weather like there today? It's actually, we've had a surprising stretch of about six days now where every day has been bluebird skies. It, we're actually getting a taste of spring, which is awesome. It's it's cold in the mornings, but it's getting up to about five, seven degrees in the afternoon, which is lovely for March, considering that winter typically lasts until early May here. Balmy weather. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to hop forward here into our weird and wonderful questions, so I hope you're prepared. Mm-hmm. First of all, a really easy start. Or maybe it isn't. I don't know. We're going to find out. Favorite season? Good question. You know, just touching on this, I mean, it it actually used to be winter when I lived in Ontario. I really loved winter and now living in the Rockies. I mean, I still do love winter, but I'm not such a fan of winter being seven months here. I think fall would be my answer. I think just the changing of the seasons, the the leaves, I mean, out here in the Rockies, I do miss the the maple reds Mm -hmm. uh, in Ontario, but Seeing the seeing the fall colors and just uh, having the weather chill a little bit uh, from from the summer warmth uh, mm-hmm. fall is a, is a good season. I think Canada does fall really well. Agreed. Yes. Yeah. A beautiful time to to visit uh, and be in this country. What's your favorite word? Favorite word. Boy, you caught me off guard, Jen. This is what these are all about. <laughs> doesn't have to be a favorite. It can just be a word that you really enjoy using. Yeah, I mean, I guess in the context of this conversation, the word outside is coming to mind. I mean, it's part of our organization's name. It's something that I hold on to dearly. It's part of my daily existence. And it's something that is really important to all human beings is just that time spent outside. So it, I, it might sound a little bit cheesy or corny with the nature of this conversation, but but that's what's coming to mind is just, uh, I think outside is a, is a good word and an important word. We like cheese on this show, so it's all good. <laughs> that's, that's perfect. Okay. Have you ever tasted soap? I have never tasted soap. No. Oh, you're a lucky guy. I tell you, they smell good, but they do not taste good. Speaking of winter, as we did earlier, what's the sound you would make if you were freezing cold? It's good. I think I'm a fairly, uh, friends will accuse me of sometimes being a little bit nonverbal and and quiet. So what's my sound if I'm cold? I'm going to go with, ugh. <laughs> 
perfect. I think that's pretty much a universal <laughs> sound. I don't think you're alone in that, but yeah. I appreciate you being willing to share it. No problem. <laughs> in the situation of a standing ovation, are you one of the first or are you a late joiner? Uh, good question. I feel, I think it's contextual. I would lean towards saying I'm a late joiner in the sense that sometimes I struggle with following the crowd. But at the same time, if the context was such, you know, I've seen some part of my background is I have a musical background. And so more so in my younger years, I really enjoyed going to the symphony orchestra. Hearing a great symphony, I would be probably one of the first to jump to my feet at the end of that symphony to give a standing ovation. So I think it's contextual. Yeah, maybe a combination of both, which <laughs> is a way out of answering that. Very strategic, and I like it. What is something you could eat for a week straight? Shrimp. Okay. I was expecting maybe bagels with peanut butter after reading your book, but <laughs> now, maybe that's like you're done with that now. That that chapter yeah, of exactly. your life has passed. Never again. Can't even look at it. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm a, I'm a lover of most foods. That in part is why I have run so much is to be able to eat all the food I want. Admittedly, sometimes I eat food that I know I shouldn't be eating. But no, I love most food. But I think seafood is sort of at the top of the list for the type of food that I could eat every day. Okay, awesome. So hopefully that set the scene for everybody as we get into our conversation. And one of the things that I always like to do is to go back in time, do a little bit of an origin story. So I'd love to have you hearken back to your childhood years and take us back to how did you begin life? Where did it happen? What's it been like being Colin? I think at the outset as a self-proclaimed introvert, sometimes I find it definitely difficult to talk about myself. I think I'd rather write than talk. But having said that, in the spirit of of doing this podcast with you, <laughs> you know, grew up in a family where parents moved around for their work. So I was born in the Badlands of Drumheller, Alberta, but it was only the first two years of my life there. So I didn't, I don't really remember too much. But I think through childhood and living in different places, whether it was Calgary or Fort McMurray or Toronto or Winnipeg, I think reflecting back, definitely the outdoors was was a part of it. My my parents weren't real outdoors people, but they did occasionally take us kids camping. And I just got to experience some of the landscape in this country. And I think, you know, again, in retrospect, that landscape helped shape who I became and who I've become. So it was, uh, I think we're really fortunate to live in this country and to have the landscape that we have uh, mm -hmm. and growing up in that landscape uh, had an impact on me for sure. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you mentioned earlier in the weird and wonderful questions about music. So is that something that you have pursued through your life? Yeah, in, in some ways, I mean, less so now, but again, music was a big part of my childhood. And then I actually went to University of Toronto for music education. And part of the thinking there was, was to become a music teacher hmm. or to play in an orchestra for numerous reasons that didn't come to fruition and, and things started to shift a little bit. 
I think my love for the outdoors sort of took precedence over my love for music. Music still holds, obviously, it's a very powerful and impactful art form that we all need uh, and that you find around the world. It's always great sort of immersing yourself in, in different music. For me, whether it's classical or whether it's contemporary or a whole range in between, I think music is able to really instill some interesting reflection and and thoughts uh, when you give yourself space to do so. And I think what's really interesting across the board when you talk to people who have followed their passions and creating a career, it could be really difficult to decide which one to follow. Music, as you said, is a space for creativity, curiosity, exploration, and reflection. You've basically done the same in a completely different medium. And mm-hmm. so I think it's always really nice to reflect back on pathways that we've followed and see that they cross over into what we end up doing, regardless of what direction we take. Speaking of that, the passion for getting outside sort of took precedence over this particular pathway. Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about how that came to fruition. There wasn't necessarily a, a defining moment, an aha moment. I think it was, a, it was, in fact, a slow burn where throughout university, there was a growing sense that I didn't necessarily want to become a music teacher. Even though I had that love for music, I started one sort of funny story is just like I wanted to spend more time outside. And so I tried a summer of tree planting. I lasted all of five days. I think it was more my personality that didn't quite jive with I was too much of an introvert, to be honest. I, I went at it solo. And that's a regret, actually. I think that if there's one thing in life I would want to go back and redo, it would be sticking out uh, the summer of tree planting. But mm-hmm. we all sort of we make our decisions and, and it impacts the past that, that we go down. And so I think everything has worked out reasonably well. But no, I mean, I think I started spending more time outside. I served in a restaurant out in the Rockies uh, in my early years, I worked, I ended up working at an outdoor education center. And that's, I think, what really helped shape the direction that I was going in life. And just seeing that value of students coming up to the outdoor center to have a two, three, four day experience where they left some stuff behind in the city, you saw different sides of their personalities. All of this sort of led to this real love for the landscape and how the outdoors really shape who we are and who we become. Mm -hmm. For those who are listening, Colin does have a book called Take Me Outside, Running Across the Canadian Landscape That Shapes Us. And you do go back and talk about the different positions that you took over the years trying to get outside. You also mentioned it earlier that your time in Halliburton, as you said, there wasn't one particular moment, but perhaps that was one that really changed the game. That experience of sort of living outside of a city context, uh, living in a smaller town, the outdoor center was situated on a thousand acres of property uh, and two kilometers of shoreline. I think that maybe the important thing to note is like even when I was growing up and living in cities, even in Toronto, like I think this country is really fortunate to have the green space that we have. Even in urban contexts, we have so many parks you know, there's an interesting conversation around what does it mean to spend time in nature? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think everyone has a bit of a different take on that. But I think the work of taking me outside and and just the view that I hold personally is it doesn't have to be in an 
epic adventure outside. You don't have to live on a lake or in the forest or any of this stuff. I mean, you can still live in a city and just enjoy a walk around the block in the evening with a friend, with family, with your pet. For me, you know, that happened a lot with both the dog I had while running across Canada, Kuna, and I just adopted another dog a year ago, Nanook, and, and she helps get me outside on a daily basis. But we're just really fortunate to have the time that we spend outside. And that time in Ontario at this outdoor center in Halberton was instrumental in doing that. It was an important time in my life and it helped shape what was to come. The point that you're making there is, as you said, you don't have to live out in the countryside. You don't have to live in the grand expanse of nature in order to be exposed to it. I have spent some years in cities. I found myself being almost more inventive about the ways that I got outside because you are in an urban landscape. And I remember feeling the pull. I lived in London, England, and I, I felt the pull of just wanting to be on the water. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't necessarily something that was done within the city context. Right. And I ended up finding an organization that was teaching paddleboarding on the River Thames. I distinctly remember people sort of walking along the shoreline. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was like, you should get down here. This is awesome. I think that it is really important to note that the process of getting outside doesn't also have to be some grand expedition or adventure. It is in the simple moments of just walking outside and feeling the sun on your face or the breeze on your skin that is really important to everybody. You know, for me, the important part of the conversation is things are shifting and we're being drawn towards what's inside, I, I think, especially in this digital age, you know, and, and sometimes my fear is sounding like an old person talking about some of this. And by no means am I, a, you know, a Luddite or anti-technology. I mean, mm -hmm. I love my Netflix shows and I am super grateful for the internet. Yeah, we're living in a sort of a great digital age that has a lot of technological advancement. The thing that sticks out for me and some of the stuff that I've read and some of the stuff that I've learned over the last several years is that that time in front of screens does have an impact on us. A lot of it can be a negative impact. And so, you know, when I started this journey of incorporating Timmy Outside as a nonprofit organization and running across the country, the conversation revolved mainly around our physical health and, and this idea that the time that we were spending in front of screens, be it TV, video games, our computers, that it was making us sedentary and affecting our physical health. You know, a decade later and more based on so much research that's coming out, that time in front of screens is having a much greater impact, not only mm -hmm. on our physical health, but on our emotional health, on our mental health, on our spiritual health. And so I think it's really important to, to address. And I think coming back to your question, for me, it's even in the context of living in a city and the simple act of going for a half an hour walk around the block, we can so easily sit inside in a chair on the couch and scroll through Instagram, Facebook or Twitter or whatever for half an hour and completely get lost. I, I'm not sure about your listeners, but for me, there is a sense after, and I fall into that trap too. I mean, I'm immersed in this work, but I have certainly fallen into that trap of wasting away half an hour scrolling through things on my phone. 
And there is a sense of regret at the end of it. Like it Mm. just feels like time wasted. I think my argument is when you go out for a walk or a bike ride or a hike or whatever you do outside, even in the heart of winter, once you finish that walk, that bike ride, there is absolutely no regret. In this day and age when our time is precious and everyone is vying for our attention, especially companies these days, I think that time outside can be really impactful and important. You know, and I feel like this is a bold statement, but I really do feel like that time outside makes us better human beings than sometimes the time that we spend in front of screens. And it's not to pit one against the other. There's lots that we can learn from the internet, from our time in front of screens, but it's it requires a balance. And I think research is showing us not only with kids, sometimes the conversation revolves around kids, but this conversation is just as relevant with adults. And I think we're the role models for kids. Mm-hmm. And we need to do a better job of this is just moderation. We need to find better balance between that amount of time that we're spending in front of screens and the amount of time that we do other things like spending time outside. Yeah, absolutely. Just from an external perspective, when I when I look at Take Me Outside and the work that you're doing, I think there's a twofold sort of like win-win benefit of this work, which is on one hand, you're fostering and facilitating curiosity in youth and by proxy also in adults because youth actually have a, a big impact on the people in their lives or they can if they're open to it. And you're fostering basically a natural inclination of being a human being, which is to explore and to play and to learn. When we do that at a younger age, it's more likely that they will take that into adulthood. And I I personally see curiosity as like a keystone characteristic that really helps us to grow and find confidence in our ability to adapt and expand, you know, in all aspects of our lives. And that play is actually a really strong instinct. So on one side, you've got this kind of personal development. And then on the other side, I really see this sort of collective benefit. I'm a strong believer that personal connection to the environment leads to its protection. And that if we don't have personal experiences of awe and wonder in the natural environment, there's going to be this disconnect where we won't feel drawn to protect it. I've spent a good part of my career facilitating people of all ages opportunities to create a connection with nature, whether it's something that's new or maybe it brings back memories of an earlier connection to sort of reignite that sense of purpose. So this personal and collective development. And so for me, what you're doing really fits in perfectly to the whole context of this show, which is recreation to recreation and saying personal and collective exploration, experience and expansion towards a healthier world on Mm -hmm. all different scales. So when you think about your mission and how it's unfolded over the years with Take Me Outside, what have you been able to witness in these spheres of change from the individual to the collective? and, And how does that inspire you? There's lots of thoughts in there. I think just building on what you said, I mean, I think we have lots of different relationships in our lives. We have relationships to friends, we have relationships to family. And in those two instances, we we care about these people. But in order to have a healthy relationship with those people, you need to put time into the, that relationship. You need to put effort into that relationship. And I think it's really no different than with our time outside and, and our relationship with the environment. I think we're living in an interesting age where, you know, especially with social media, and again, social media has potential to do good, 
But I think sometimes there's a tendency to think that we can fix the world through social media. And so there's this notion of activism through social media that I think, it, again, it has a time and a place, but it's not the be all end all. And so I think for our time and our relationship with the environment, it's important that we treat it the same as our other relationships in life and that we put mm -hmm. time and effort into building and strengthening that relationship with the outdoors. For sort of finding inspiration, I've seen and in the context of Take Me Outside, you know, we see the benefit. We primarily work with educators across the country and really sort of we know that just giving them resources to help them take their students outside, that can be a step. I think we need to sort of instill this love and drive home the importance of that time outside so that it becomes more ingrained in our worldviews as adults. And then, especially in the context of education, you know, those teachers, if they really believe for themselves that spending time outside is important, well, that's going to trickle down to the way that they approach their teaching practice with their students. And at the end of the day, that's sort of the impact that we're looking at. We're, we're wanting to work with teachers to get them to think about what does learning look like when you extend that learning beyond four walls and a desk? Where are our students learning? And I think it's an important question to address that where because increasingly students are learning inside of a classroom and more so through the age that we're living through, they're learning in front of these screen-based devices. And so while there are many benefits that come from that, is there balance? We know how much of a teacher the land can be and how that experiential place-based education outside Research is showing how impactful that can be for students. I think we see it on both sides. I mean, obviously, students who have teachers who take them outside are benefiting and helping build that relationship themselves as younger people with the outdoors. But then we see the benefit from teachers as well. And the hope eventually is to, to help move the needle on the education system as a whole, to really think about where students are learning and how that impacts how students are learning it addresses some of the questions around why students are learning, what students are learning. Um, but these are some of the things that, that we're working on. I really loved what you said about treating our relationship with the environment the same as we would have a loved one. You know, as we create this connection, it's going to benefit both ways. Uh, so, mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. Speaking of the start of Take Me Outside, and we've alluded to it a couple of times in terms of your run across Canada, which is, you know, kind of a thing. How did that all start? There were two sort of pivotal things. I'll just share them briefly. One was watching the 1988 Winter Olympics that were hosted in Canada and Calgary. And the torch relay goes through every host country. And I was living in Winnipeg at the time, and we were let out of school to go up, and we were given these little mini Petro Canada torches. And, anyways, me and my friends had the opportunity to run beside the torch bearer and have our little torches lit. My friends got bored pretty quickly and they ducked off back to school. And for some reason, I just I kept running with the torch bearer. And I ended up running to the sort of city limits on the west end of Winnipeg. I guess the, you know, the torchbearer got back in their support vehicle and I was left with a long walk back to school. But <laughs> I sort of say like in that moment, a seed was planted and, and I didn't know specifically then that I wanted to run across the country, but I know that I wanted to try and do something that would make a difference. I was a little bit too young to, at the time to fully grasp 
Terry Fox's story mm-hmm. and his Marathon of Hope. But as I grew older, like most Canadians, I learned his story, was inspired by him. I wasn't trying to duplicate what Terry Fox did, but I certainly wanted to emulate Terry Fox and the spirit that he had. And I think that's what he's done with many people who grew up in Canada and those who have learned his story in other places around the world. By the time I was in my mid-teens really solidified this desire to want to run across Canada. Now that didn't come to fruition for, I guess, another 20 years, but there was this sort of desire to run across the country. And then when I finally pulled the trigger and realized I wasn't getting any younger and that my body might not uh, hold out if I waited (laughs) too much longer, you know, then it was a matter of what do I want to do this for? What cause do I want to do this for? And I had been working in the field of outdoor education for years in this outdoor center in in Halliburton. I had seen the positive impacts of students coming up and spending that time outside. There was a growing body of research that was showing how much time kids were spending in front of screens. And so that was really the reason for running across Canada was to go into schools and to chat with students about trying to spend a little bit less time in front of screens and trying to spend a little bit more time outside. And so for those listening, just so that you understand quite how far this is, 7,600 kilometers, which is the equivalent of 181 marathons. Pretty big deal. (laughs) And I'm sure looking back on it, you know, you stopped off, if I got this right, 80 schools, over 20,000 students that you interacted with over that nine-month period. When you were in the planning phases, did you doubt yourself or your ability to do it? For sure, there were moments of doubt. You know, it was a lifelong dream that I think had had grown. I think there's, you know, there was this inner confidence, maybe with a combination of stubbornness and persistence that somewhere in there said that I could do this. When I floated the idea around to certain people, parents were a little bit suspect obviously for good reason. (laughs) From the loving place, right? Exactly, from a loving place. But they came around and I think it's important for everyone to have these dreams of things that they want to achieve in life. I think the reality is that all of those things don't come to fruition. I mean, when I was younger, I played a lot of baseball and I wanted to be a professional baseball player. And that Mm -hmm. was a dream for a lot of my younger years. That didn't come to fruition, but that's okay. I think it's a, again, it's a nuanced and complicated conversation in terms of this notion of, of chasing your dreams. It's important to pursue your dreams, but I think it's also setting out those realistic expectations. And so planning this, yeah, I think there was a, a degree of doubt. There also haven't been a lot of people who have run across the country. There was no real guiding document or... Mm-hmm planning template for doing this. So a lot of it was just this notion of faking it till you make it. And I think the unknown, I mean, I think it's easier to maybe try and do something not knowing what is entailed in that process and you begin to find out as you go. So we did the best we can in terms of planning out the run across the country. There were multiple sort of speed bumps that I thought would would sideline the journey. But I think that's where this sense of resiliency and stubbornness and just that inner motivation, which I think we all have, bringing that to the surface 
you know, I think in the book, I try to say like, just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And mm-hmm. that was literally the job of making it 7,600 kilometers across the country. But I think metaphorically as well, like it, it really is sometimes a matter of, it feels like baby steps and often it can feel like one step forward, two steps back. But I think the important thing is just making sure that you're trying to take steps forward. And so that's what I did. And I think that's what helped get me across the country. One of the things that you've actually mentioned a couple of times now is that you would consider yourself an introvert, which is really interesting considering the profession that you're in, reaching out to so many people, going up in front of so many students and educators. And I think it's it's really wonderful to hear from someone who considers themselves to be introverted, who has basically put themselves into a space where they are forced literally outside of their comfort zone. And, mm-hmm. and although there wasn't necessarily a blueprint for this run across Canada, you also talked about Terry Fox. And from reading that, you also met another very inspiring man when you were, I think it was day 187 from my notes here. (laughs) So I'd love to speak about that too. Even though there wasn't necessarily a blueprint in terms of planning this actual run, there were people out there that you were able to draw inspiration from so that that conviction was able to carry you forward as well. Yeah. And there were numerous people that sort of inspired me. I mean, the story you're referring to is this gentleman, John Beliveau, who had spent 11 years walking around the entire planet through different countries on different continents. And he was on his home stretch, I guess, of finishing this journey from Vancouver back to his home in Montreal. And so it coincided with the time that I was running across the country and I ran from east to west, so St. John's to, to Victoria. And our pass crossed in the middle of nowhere, northern Ontario. It was just a really special moment. He had such a warm spirit, such a great smile, and he showed me pictures of his journey. I knew of his journey uh, just through doing some homework, and he sort of had heard what I was doing. I think what made it most special was that there was no one else around. It was really Mm -hmm. sort of, it was in the the boreal forest of of northern Ontario, and and it was just 20 minutes on the side of the Trans-Canada Highway of sharing some stories, having some laughs. And I walked away just sort of with my cup overfilled. You know, that was sort of a personal sort of inspiration that kept me going through sort of that rough stretch through Northern Ontario where I was on my own. But every school that I would visit, I would walk out of that school feeling inspired by just the energy from the students, but also from the work that the teachers were doing in that Mm -hmm. school. You know, the journey took a little bit longer because of visiting those 80s schools, but I wouldn't change that in a heartbeat. It gave the run across Canada purpose. As I tried to convey, and I still reflect on this, is that, you know, there was this personal dream to to do this run across Canada. And certainly I needed that motivation in order to achieve that dream. But I think very early on in in the run, I realized that this wasn't about me. It was about something bigger. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, you know, all of these years later and the work that Take Me Outside is doing, I think I'm proud of the fact that we're trying to move the needle on what it means for where a student learns uh, in a given school day. And that work that we're doing Uh, I would say there's a good majority of teachers that we work with who have no idea that I ran across the country to start taking me outside. And that feels good in a lot of ways. That feels like it means that the journey has had a more lasting impact 
outside of this personal dream that that I had. So I'm still proud on a personal level of of achieving that dream. It's something that I'll always hold as an important life achievement within myself. But I'm really grateful that this grew into something bigger than that and that the organization and the work that we're doing is having an impact beyond that run. Yeah, absolutely. And I was just thinking what a thing it was for the two of you to meet each other in the middle of nowhere at a time when perhaps both of you needed it to just cross paths with a kindred spirit who was also operating from this internal conviction and, you know, I need to do this and feeling that pull. But mm-hmm. that we have that opportunity and that space in our everyday lives as well. As you said, you crossed over with so many educators and students and you still continue to do so that although you're not physically running, you're still running, pushing this organization forward and still, you know, fighting the good fight of of trying to do something that's going to have a really long-term impact on the lives of many, many people. To recognize that you don't have to be on some grand adventure to have those meaningful moments with other people where you really just find someone that you can connect with. And I think that that's something that's, that's really important for all of us as we sort of navigate our lives and try and do things that are a little bit outside the box. Yeah, I recently listened to a podcast, uh, Hidden Brain. It's it's a fairly popular podcast and just kind of talks about the science and the psychology uh, of the brain. And there were a couple episodes on happiness. I think two struck me. One is, you know, most research shows that finding happiness comes through trying to do meaningful work, trying to do work for sort of the greater good. And then I think the other way that happiness is often found is is through relationships. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I think sometimes I can lose sight of that and, and you sort of get focused on other things in life, trying to keep that in mind. Not that, I mean, that's an, another conversation in and of itself in terms of the pursuit of happiness. But mm-hmm. I think there's, you know, there's a degree to which we all would like to experience some degree of happiness in our lives. And and those two things, I think, really stick out for me. And so the work that, you know, I'm doing with Tami Outside, I think, provides a degree of fulfillment, which then leads to a degree of happiness. So I wouldn't say it's, it's daily, sometimes you're grinding, and some days, yeah. it's eight hours in front of your computer trying to get work done. And there, there isn't much joy to be found in that. But when I think about the relationships that I've been able to build since doing that run across Canada, some of the organizations that I've been able to build relationships with and the individuals in those relationships, yeah, I feel very grateful for the work that, that I'm doing and, and the people that I've met. That leads me to kind of knowing our impact. So I'm hoping that some of the people that are listening are perhaps in a space of trying to decide how to create their own pathway to being of service in some way and finding that fulfillment and the happiness that you're talking about. And whether it's the creation of a group, an initiative, a business, a not-for-profit, you had this great quote in your book, in an age of analytics and metrics, do one's convictions still matter if they don't add up to something tangible? And When we find ourselves wanting to serve a community and live from our passions and find that fulfilling work, we can be fueled by seeing our efforts having an impact, you know? I look at Take Me Outside and and had a look at your website and the impact reports and beautiful metrics and infographics, things that you can look at now sort of looking back. But 
when we first start, we can't necessarily see that impact straight away. And we kind of have to lead from this inner fuel and this belief that probably 99% of the change we're inspiring, we might never see. You talk about it in your book, and we briefly alluded to it before about self-doubt kind of creeping in as we're, especially when you're putting yourself under such extreme physical and psychological stress as you did with your run across the country, but also in the daily grind, trying to push something forward that you feel is a calling. Mm -hmm. It sounds like the interactions with students and teachers were a big part of the fueling for that run. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how this has impacted your journey when you were running. And have you been able to pull this through into the work that has taken shape now? It's a tough question to, to answer, I think, in a lot of ways. As long as you have those convictions, I mean, I think that's, you know, to, the word integrity comes to mind. I mean, I think you you follow these convictions and you try to do meaningful work without sort of the notion of being validated for it or mm -hmm. seeing tangibly what the impact is. I mean, I, yeah, I chatted with 20,000 students. I have no idea the impact that I had on those students. I would argue that, you know, my time with them was extremely brief. I actually think the people who are having the greatest impact on them are their teachers who get to mm -hmm. spend a year with them. We're all doing our little bit to try and make the world a better place. The hour, hour and a half that I would have going and talking to these students, that was what I could offer. And you're trying to do the best job that you can. You know, all of these years later, I have really no understanding of the impact that I may have had on certain students or on certain teachers. There are teachers who have been in touch since doing the run across the country. It's again, sometimes that validation does come through emails or comments that teachers or others will make. But I think I feel really strongly that that's not why we should be doing these things. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, there's a fear of getting on a soapbox here, but I think this is where I, I have really strong feelings about social media, this notion of people trying to do seemingly good work through being an influencer or through their work on social media. And I, I think there are examples that where that might be the case, but I also feel like we're in an age where, you know, that end goal of more followers and more followers equals potential more income. Okay. And I feel like on social media, there's a temptation to fall into some of these traps where you think you're making a difference but really, it's a, your self-interests are more at play than the interests of the greater good, if that makes sense. It maybe circles back to what are the impacts. And, and you know, I think as human beings, it's natural to, to want validation for the work that, that you do. I think that's almost innate. I think the difficult part is that social media has perpetuated that of looking for that validation through mm -hmm. likes and, and shares and comments and whatnot. But that isn't the reason we should be doing the things that we're doing. So that comes back to this idea of convictions and that convictions matter. If you really believe strongly in a cause and you have carved out your little way that you're trying to make the world a better place, then you do that without seeking any form of validation. And you do that not knowing the impact that you might have on the people that you're interacting with, but you're trying to do it with integrity. You're trying to do it with a sense of conviction. And I think that in and of itself should be enough. Does that make sense? 
Absolutely. I think if I look at social media, some positive movements in the right direction, for example, um, the option to remove showing how many likes you got on your post. Like I thought that was a huge step in the right direction because I agree with you that there, there is this temptation for validation that we can all fall into. It also returns back to what you were saying earlier about happiness. You know, when we attach our happiness to an external outcome or an external circumstance, I really think a lot of it, if not most of it, should come from that internal knowing of I'm doing what I can and it feels right to me. And instead of needing approval or or whatever it might be or needing the metrics, just safe in that knowledge of if you're following what feels right and feels good to you you can know that you are impacting, even if it's a small crowd, right? It's the same as if you go and you do some public speaking and say you expected 500 people and only five show up. Mm -hmm. Those five are the people that are supposed to be there and the ones that are meant to hear your message. And sometimes those are the best ones because you actually end up having these wonderful conversations with people that you wouldn't have gotten if you had this big crowd. So I think it's just a case of quality over quantity really just realizing that it doesn't necessarily matter the number. It just matters that you're doing something, as you said, to move the needle. I mean, there's numerous examples, but I think the example that comes to mind for me is a a single parent who's working three jobs to make ends meet, to raise their kid as best as possible. That's such important work. Like Mm -hmm. even that, that parent might just be impacting one human being but that's the most important human being they should be impacting. Sometimes we can fall into this trap that we need to change the world and that we need to do that on a larger scale. But there's definitely something to be said about that local approach and sometimes that really limited approach of, you know, I'm going to make a difference with one individual in my family or one friend and that's going to help make the world a better place. And that's enough. Again, everyone has sort of their own journey and they have their own circumstances of day-to-day life, which I think is both an advantage, but also sometimes a barrier to trying to make the world a better place. But but again, I think it's just that mindset of you, you do what you can given the circumstances that you're in mm-hmm. um, and the relationships that you have. It actually goes back to this podcast on happiness of just what countries sort of had higher rates of happiness than mm-hmm. others. And it showed that countries who are more community oriented do, in fact, have greater levels of happiness than some Western countries. And unfortunately, Canada and US would be part of that where, and again, it's not to go off on a tangent here, but I think some people would argue that these two countries have become a little bit more individualistic um, mm. over the last couple of decades. And and I think there's numerous reasons for that. And it's not to necessarily be critical of, of that. I think everyone's doing the best that they can. Right. You know, given how much mud we trudge through on a daily basis. I mean, everyone has that mud that they're trudging through and, and life is not easy. But I think those countries, those communities that are more focused on that community building, that relationship building within their own community, find those greater degrees of happiness. And I, th- I think in the work that we're doing, it is really trying to, again, I, I don't know whether the term is sort of too old or antiquated, but for the greater good, as mm-hmm. opposed to for the, what's good for the individual. That's actually something that I was hoping we were going to get on to, which was 
the sort of intrinsic value of things rather than the imposed or constructed value of things. So you touched on it there in terms of, you know, everybody's trudging through their own mud. Everybody's got their things that they're working through. And if we can find this Rather than the separation, the sense of oneness and sense of community in our local communities, in our families, but also on a wider scale, on a global scale even, I think that that's a huge part of cracking the code for actually moving towards you know, a healthier future for the planet and for all its inhabitants. One of the things that you talked about in your book, which I I'm a geographer, so I totally geeked out about a lot of it as you were running across and kind of describing everything and not only looking at the geography, and but also the history. You explored the notion of ownership of land versus responsibility to care for it while we're here temporarily. And this is something that is really aligned with the way that I have approached nature. I was very fortunate that I had the honor of working with members of the New Chanuth early in my career in the Pacific Northwest mm -hmm. and learning traditional ecological knowledge and their belief of Hishokish Sawak, which is everything is one. We are part of nature, not separate from it. And really this idea of wholeness, it's served me beautifully throughout the past 15 years in my professional and my personal life. It intersects with the point you made about the human construct of borders. And you're talking about Canada and the US, this sense of separation, individuality, the same as humans constructing notions of nature that have monetary or resource value versus intrinsic value. And I work in the Great Lakes and I, I always joke that the lakes don't know there's a border there. And so, you know, we need to work collaboratively as citizens of the same shared backyard aka planet earth um, mm -hmm. rather than from our imposed separation that we've constructed i'd love to hear a little bit more about your experience and exposure to indigenous knowledge and wisdom and how that's impacted your life both personally and professionally you know i had the opportunity when i was younger to go up and teach in the northwest territories with indigenous students I reflect on that time and my experiences with those students and the conversation has just shifted so significantly over the past four or five years now, six years, to bring to light some of the deep and hurtful issues that, that have affected Indigenous communities. And so, mm. yeah, my personal journey is it's still one that is learning every day. I think it's still one where I feel like I'm making mistakes every day. Mm -hmm. I'm also challenging myself in terms of what I think I know versus what I actually know. I've gone back to school and in the past year of coursework, we've studied some Indigenous scholars. My takeaway from what I've learned from Indigenous perspectives and Indigenous ways of knowing are, are two things. One is how important our relationship with the land is and how important our relationship with people are. Mm -hmm. And the two don't have to be separate. They can go hand in hand. But I think that's been my biggest takeaway in thinking about this over the last few years. And I think that's something that as settlers on this land and more so just people who tend to focus on the system that we live in in terms of capitalism mm. i don't think that's going to change in our lifetime and it's not to say that we shouldn't work on maybe changing that but i think from everything that i've read it's the best of the worst sort of structures out there to shape society and so i think there are those that are working on on trying to change that which is great but we all sort of have our hills that we try to fight battles on and and 
for me, it, it does come down to trying to get people to just appreciate and value the time that we spend outside and the relationship that we have with the land. And so I really think that in terms of Indigenous ways of knowing, there's an opportunity as settlers in this country to really try and live that, to try and build that relationship with the land. And in doing so, I think you're right, you've alluded to that earlier, it does have an impact on environmental issues like climate change. Again, I think the stronger that relationship we can have with the outdoors, the more we care about this planet that we're on. And Mm -hmm. hopefully the more that we can do to help mitigate some of the environmental issues that we're that we're facing so i think there's a lot to draw on and learn from indigenous ways of knowing but for me those are sort of two of the key aspects that i consistently take away is our our relationship with the land and our relationship with people you know it comes back to that notion of curiosity and that willingness to break down those constructs of what we thought we knew mm-hmm. and so i think it's it's wonderful for each and every one of us to just as you said learn every day recognize that mistakes are learning opportunities and to not be afraid to look at different ways of thinking and ways of being and really decide for yourself what sits well with you yeah and i think at the end of the day like you know we might not change the structures that are in place in terms of how we live day to day as Canadians. I think there is a lot of work to do in terms of government policies. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of work to do in terms of land treaties and that relationship between government and Indigenous people. But I think as an everyday citizen, it's multi-layered, but I would say that we are extremely fortunate regardless of whether you're Indigenous, whether you're born and raised in Canada, whether you're a refugee, whether you've immigrated to this country. We are extremely fortunate to live on the land that this country offers. And with that comes a responsibility to take care of it. Sometimes there can be separate conversations around land ownership. And that's problematic in terms of when we talk about the house that I have, the property that Mm -hmm. I own. I think some of that language and some of those structures are problematic. But at the same time, what we can learn from Indigenous people is that We are stewards of this land, all of us. It's not up to one group of people or another group of people or the government. It's all of us. If we take care of it, it has so much to offer us in so many different ways. Again, it's a complicated conversation. And, and, you know, I think just to acknowledge as part of this conversation as a non-Indigenous person, Mm -hmm. I do struggle to talk about some of this stuff and... Again, I think trying to do my best to learn as much as I can. But like I said earlier, I mean, I think feel like on a daily basis, there are still mistakes made and realizing that my thinking is flawed a lot of the time. And and so it's this constant journey to try and learn as much as possible and build those relationships, not only with Indigenous people and Indigenous communities, but building those relationships with the community around you is paramount. And I think that time outside and the land we live on is an important part of that conversation, regardless of, of who you are. The key thing that we can always focus on is willingness willing to be incorrect, being willing to change, to shift and expand. And and I think that's the key of of all of it. Yeah. Just realizing how difficult that change can be. There's a a book by Adam Grant called Think Again, and it just sort of lays out the deep challenge to change someone's mind, being consciously cognizant 
of your own biases. Right. Uh, it's a lot of hard work, not only to change someone else's mind, but to change your own mind. I think we always or often talk about how difficult it can be to change someone else's mind. And we don't acknowledge how difficult it is to change our own minds. For sure. On stuff that we feel that we're right about. <laughs> At the end of the day, the only mind that we can fully change is our own. We can yep. lead We can lead by example. That's really, I think, the space of our individual power is to just show that that you're willing to do the work on your side and especially in the in the work that you're doing and and other people that are in the same vein not saying i'm right and i have all the answers it's here's what i've found here's what i am finding and and just leading from that space rather than a space of i know mm -hmm. for sure when I was thinking about your run across Canada and you know the starting of an organization and something new this ability to slow down and be present talking about your run one step at a time one day at a time and i know that obviously as with all big challenges you faced moments where you had to really just go into that sort of thinking i can't think about tomorrow i can't even think about this afternoon i just have to be exactly where i am and that is actually a really powerful practice for anyone that's looking to take on something big is to break it down into these bite-sized chunks. Have you carried that notion of slowing down with you and being present with you as you've moved forward? Or is that something that gets forgotten quite a lot in the busyness of running your own organization? That's a challenging question to answer, but a good one, an important one. It, it does, it absolutely gets lost in the day-to-day -day sometimes. Take Me Outside is still trying to grow organizationally. So I'm the executive director, but it's on a part-time basis. I still have a full-time job here in Banff that helps pay rent and put wow. food on the table. And then I've started school and in, in the middle of, of doing a PhD. And so, yeah, there are many moments where life feels overwhelming and there isn't a sense of, of slowing down, which in some ways is ironic because often when you're so busy, you feel this sense of paralysis and you, you can't do anything. You're just stuck. I think for me, and I mean, not to sound cliche, but it is those moments of going outside that helps me slow down. Mm -hmm. In the busyness of day to day, again, this little husky that I adopted last February, she helps me slow down. She helps mm -hmm. me go for a walk. You know, often I'm intentional with those walks and I don't bring a phone with me. And that helps me just to, we have those phones with us almost every minute of the day. And I think finding mm -hmm. opportunities where we intentionally leave that phone aside or even leave it behind have that potential to help us slow down. I've definitely struggled on a fairly consistent basis to find times where I slow down. I do think it's twofold. I think sometimes when you're in it and you're in the thick of it and you're really busy, you can actually end up being more productive and you can feel really inspired. You can feel like you're getting stuff done mm -hmm. uh, and it drives you forward. It's, it's motivational in a lot of ways to be busy, but I think it's finding that balance to realize how important it is to slow down. And again, I think part of that slowing down is having a break from screens. I think when there are those moments of slowing down, that's where I feel my most creative self. Mm -hmm. But that most creative self definitely doesn't have screens involved. Uh, I don't feel creative when I'm looking at a computer screen. I don't feel creative when I'm looking at a phone. 
I think it really takes those intentional moments away from those devices to be immersed in just your own mind, your own head, which I think, you know, again, is another conversation, but something that we feel less and less comfortable with Mm -hmm. um, these days. And whether it's distraction or whether it's sort of wanting to not live in our own heads, I think it's finding, again, that balance between the way that those devices can enrich our lives, but also realizing the ways that silence, slowing down, not having those devices in front of us can also enrich our lives. We've obviously talked a lot about Take Me Outside, and that is our cause for this month for our recreation donation. What are some of the opportunities open to teachers and students and school boards if they wanted to get involved or learn more? We've partnered with the Outdoor Learning Store. They provide resources and supplies for teachers to take their students outside. We've been offering uh, workshops over the past year and a half for educators around various sort of subjects within this umbrella term of outdoor learning. So we've had Indigenous speakers come and talk about Indigenous ways of knowing. We've had speakers come and talk about environmental and climate change education. We've had speakers address health and well-being. And so these workshops, you know, typically we have 1,500 to 2,000 teachers across the country uh, registering for these workshops. And so that's one avenue that can be found uh, on our website for, for educators There's two key initiatives that we're doing right now. One is called Take Me Outside Day, which happens in the fall. It sort of coincided with with the last day of running across the country and wanting to celebrate that with the schools that I had visited. And so that's turned into something where upwards of 400,000 students and teachers across the country participating and sort of making this commitment of spending time outside on this given day at the end of October it's one day, but I think it's it's what it represents. It's trying to raise awareness about the importance of that learning happening outside. So that's something that teachers can participate in. And then we try to build on that a little bit with what we call the Take Me Outside for Learning Challenge. And that's where we have teachers making that sort of more robust commitment throughout the school year of trying to take their students outside at least once a week for learning. Several thousand teachers across the country sign up for that. We provide monthly resources, professional development opportunities, and activities to help support them in that. There are definitely teachers who across the country who already have this mindset, who already do a great job of taking their students outside. Mm-hmm. I think what Take Me Outside is trying to do is build on that and really open the door a crack for educators and teachers who haven't considered that as part of their teaching practice before. Right. And so that's the work that we're doing that's immersed in the education side of things. And then we're continuing to try and find opportunities and ways just to address that broader goal that we have of spending less time in front of screens and more time outside, again, based on sort of the research that is continuously emerging around our relationship with devices, the role that technology is playing in society and the age that we're living in. Again, a lot of it is amazing stuff that is potentially making life better, but I think it requires critical reflection on what technology we're using and how we're using it. Right. And so part of the work that we're doing is is focused on that as well. Well, this has been a really fascinating exploration for me today and hopefully for our listeners as well, I have no doubt. First of all, thank you for what you've done. 
Thank you for going on your run and living that dream, but also setting up this organization because I think you are absolutely changing the lives of people across the country. I have a saying, you know, hang up and hang out. And it's something that kind of say in jest, but having to say it more and more often, spending time with people, hang up and hang out, not only with the people that you're with, but also the world around you. And you'll be awestruck by what's available to you when you do so. Just one final question today, Colin. What do you think the meaning and purpose of life, the universe and everything is? Okay, before I answer that, I am going to just say thanks for having me, Janet. You know, I think the work that you're doing is really in a lot of ways aligned with the work that Take Me Outside is trying to do. I appreciate the work that that you're doing, and it's always great chatting with sort of like-minded people uh, and people who are trying to do that meaningful work to, in some way, make the world a better place. I think that's really important work. So thanks for what you're doing and appreciate you having me on. This question, your last question, you know, I love thinking about these types of questions, but I feel so ill-equipped to try and answer a question like that. I'm going (laughs) to do my best so that I'm not... uh, opting out of answering it completely. Well, I've also had all sorts of answers so far. So (laughs) you can say 42 if that's what, you know, floats your boat. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I think what is the meaning and purpose of life? I mean, I, I don't have that answer. I would say, I think what comes to mind is that we often forget that we're animals, but I think what separates us uh, is the language that we've developed. And in developing that language, we are we have become storytelling creatures. And those stories help shape our history. They help shape the cultures that we live in. From that, it's really important to tell meaningful stories. There's a time and a place. You know, when I do presentations with students, I think there's a time and a place for funny stories, mm-hmm. for silly stories. I think there's a time and a place for you know, TV shows that are just absolutely ridiculous. (laughs) And we need that as a little bit of an escape. But while there's a time and a place for those stories, I think there's really a need for good and meaningful stories to be told to help make the world a better place and to shape the history and culture that that we're living in. What is the purpose and meaning of, of life in the universe? I think as a human being, one of our primary purposes should be to tell good and meaningful stories to ensure that we're trying to make the world a better place. Absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jen. This month's recreation donation is in support of Take Me Outside. As you now know from exploring with Colin and I in this episode, they are an organization that believes spending time outside learning, playing, and exploring is a regular and significant part of every learner's day. They work in collaboration with other organizations, school boards, educators, and students across Canada to encourage youth to spend more time outside. Whether you can volunteer your time, money, or your voice, We hope you will head over to our Patreon page to find out the different ways you can support their unique version of recreation for the world. Please take the time to let us know what the stories we explored in this episode meant to you. And if you do take action to support this month's cause, thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Recreation to Recreation. 
If you, or someone you know, has a unique and inspiring story to tell, make sure to reach out so we can share it with the world. Until next time, keep happy, keep healthy, and keep exploring.